and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. Now, the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can listen to the audiobook, which is pretty cool, at Audible. So if you enjoyed listening to these podcasts, perhaps Audible will be the place for you to gather all the information about Shift Your Mind. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching from yours truly. It's designed for executives who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our next accelerator launches in July, and it's filling up now. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to email me at brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode, and I know you will, he's fantastic, or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach. You can even mention your favorite episode. Perhaps today's will be one of those. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. There are a lot of reasons why firing up this podcast four and a half years ago has been a good idea and has been fruitful for myself and hopefully for you, the listeners as well. But one of the reasons why it's been really exciting and awesome for me is that I get to interview people whose books I've read, who I have been a fan of for years. And today's guest, Steve Magnus, certainly checks that box for me. 
he's a writer. He's written three books, and two of them are are really up my alley. One is called Peak Performance, and the other is called Passion Paradox. He also wrote The Science of Running. Not necessarily my cup of tea. I try to run when possible, but I cannot claim to be a runner. And these books have sold more than 200,000 copies and been translated into more than 15 languages. Also, Steve is a performance coach. He works with athletes, entrepreneurs, and executives, as well as serves as a consultant on mental skills development for professional sports teams. He also is a running coach, so he's in the weeds helping them technically and physically maximize their ability to run. He works with professional runners, including Olympians, national champions, and top finishers at major marathons. He's also the co-creator of The Growth Equation, an online platform dedicated to the understanding and practice of performance and well-being. So we overlap quite a bit. We're interested in polarity, paradox. We're interested in peak performance. And I know you're going to love this conversation with Steve as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Steve Magnus. Steve, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you and get into all things passion and performance. I think you live in an intersection that I am very, very interested in. Where I'd love to start is on your running journey. And I'd love to just get a sense of when did running become something that you were interested in and uh, became a part of, we'll talk about identity in this conversation, but became a part of how you saw yourself. Give us some background into running. Yeah, sure. I mean, I all, I was always a fast kid in like PE or, or what have you and whatever games I played, but I didn't really enjoy running. Um, I remember doing the physical fitness test in elementary school and you'd, you'd run like that, you'd have the mile run at the end and I'd run really well in it but it would hurt so bad that I was like, I don't ever want to do this because it is just so exhausting. So my my love growing up was more of at first baseball, but then more into soccer. And I was, I was pretty good at soccer, but almost entirely because I could run really fast and for the entire game, but I didn't recognize that. Right. I just thought, Oh, I'm good at this because you know, I'm a good soccer player. And it wasn't until I tried out for um, high school cross country my freshman year and one of the seniors on the team just dragged me along because they knew I did track in junior high and was good at it and all this stuff. And I ended up excelling. I went from, you know, not having run further than I think two miles in my life coming into it where I was running, you know, eight, nine, 10 mile runs with the varsity squad and moved up from being on the freshman team to all the way to our, I think our second best runner on the team on a pretty good team as a, as a freshman. And at one point, my, my cross country and track coach pulled me aside at the end of the season and said, Steve, don't try out for the high school soccer team, like quit playing club soccer like you're going to be really, really good. And I was like, I, I don't know what that means. And at this point, like I still wasn't in love with running. I would show up and practice really hard during the five days a week of school. But then like on the weekends when he'd tell like, oh, go out for a run. I wouldn't do that stuff. Right. I was, it didn't matter that much to me. And after that moment, he was like, you can be really good. And he told me to watch like all these movies, which included like Steve Prefontaine and all these famous runners to try and get me hyped up, I think. 
And, and during that track season, I just got better and better and better. And I remember him again, pulling me aside and said, Steve, like, this is your sport. You want to go to college and not pay for it. Like, this is it. So what was your, what was your reaction to him seeing you in that light and seeing you that way? How did you react to that? I mean, at first I was clueless because I was like, oh, that sounds great. Like I'm good at, I'm good at this, but it, it, it was funny. It was like, you know, he, he, he would, you know, this is back in the year 2000. So he'd give me like, you know, VHS tapes and DVDs and stuff and be like, Hey, check this out. And it would, would be like sometimes Olympic races and sometimes things like that. And I didn't know what at the time. I just thought, oh, my coach is like just giving me old race videos to watch. I'll watch them, I guess. But he was like planning it in my mind on, on what was good and what it kind of took and what it was like and getting me hyped up. And then, as I said, somewhere along the, my freshman year, I remember him pulling me aside and being like, Steve, do you know how many, how many high school kids have run a four minute mile? And I was like, I, I don't know. And it was like, at that time, I think there'd only been three. And said, Steve, like you have the talent. I don't know if you can get there, but you have that sort of talent to be in that rarefied air. And when he had that conversation with me, I was just like, oh, this is pretty cool. Cause like, I can be really great at something. And he's sitting there telling me, this is the way to do it, right? Like you've got to do A, B, and C and practice this. And if you do these things, I can't guarantee you're going to get there but I know you can be really freaking good. So let's, let's go on that journey. And what was your family dynamic at home and what was their reaction to you sort of pursuing this more seriously? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, my dad had run high school track, but that was it. He wasn't great or anything like that. Um, my mom wasn't athletic at all. My older brother was incredibly smart, very good academics, but had the worst coordination in the world. So never played sport. So I think I was like, they were kind of clueless too. They were like, oh, my kid's really good. And, and they were really, you know, proud, but they were never, and I, I'm very thankful for this. They never pushed me on any of it. It was all me like making those choices on, okay, I want to show up to practice. I want to do all these things. And my parents were supportive you know but back before I could drive they were just kind of like okay like you want to go to the park you know six days a week or whatever it is we'll drive you there that's fine so it, it was it, it was kind of nonchalant at the beginning because they were clueless as I was and you said dad ran in high school what were they doing for work and and two siblings what was your relationship like with them give me some more background into what life was like for you as a kid and in your home life Sure. Yeah. So my dad was an uh, orthodontist um, and my mom was a teacher. So she taught special ed and then at some point stopped and um, focused on taking care of the kids. So I had an older brother who was four years older, as I said, it, very, very smart. I think he was like, you know, state champion academic decathlon or whatever it was. Um, I was not interested in academics whatsoever. I did not, you know, did not, I, I think in my entire high school English class, I might've finished like one book. Um, I was the kid who watched the movies and read the cliff notes back in the day. You and me both. 
<laughs> yeah. So that, that was it. So like sports was what I was interested in. I have a younger sister who is much younger is, you know, 10 years younger. So, um, it was, it was, you know, it was a fun dynamic. We were, you know, upper middle class and all that stuff and, and secure, um, but not, not a ton of pressure on, on what we should do or anything like that. It's so funny. Um, I wanted to be a basketball player and I'm now five foot six. So, and I wasn't five foot six in high school. <laughs> I, would, I was a small scrawny kid, but basketball is my sport. And I, so I, I got cut from the basketball team freshman year. And so I had this idea. I was like, well, I'm going to run cross country. Um, and that'll keep me in shape for basketball. So let's do cross country. And I was such a little shit. I, I, I would run to the local pizza place during practice and get a slice of pizza and French fries during practice. That's how seriously I took it and then get cramps on my run back to the school. (laughs) And it didn't last long. I, I ran for one year basketball didn't work out. Um, but I remember like they had pasta dinners and there was a crew of people that were very serious with it. And then you had the people like me who were like, I'll just do this to stay in shape. And it's something to do. Um, Did you also fall in love with the community as you got good at this? Did you create connections with your teammates? And uh, there seemed to be a camaraderie, at least on, on the team that I was on with the people that were taking this seriously. I'm curious what the team environment was like for you in high school. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think the team dynamic was what kind of, it, it made it worth doing all the work. And I think, I think one of the interesting things is if you look at team dynamics and if you look at the military, for example, one of the best ways to create cohesion is doing really difficult things because it like forces you to come together. You know, when you're out there again, training really hard and doing difficult work and taking it seriously, it's really hard not to bond with the other people doing that. So we had a, a very tight and close bond with, you know, it was the same on our team. We had some people who were doing it to get in shape and some people who took it incredibly seriously. Um, but there was an incredibly tight bond among kind of our varsity squad of who took it seriously. And don't get me wrong, we we did the same things, you know, especially early on in my career, we'd run to someone's house and play video games and then, you know, come back 30 minutes later and <laughs> dump some water on our head to make it look like you sweat. I, th- I think that's something that even the serious uh, among us go through. And you were obviously excelling at this. Take us through what you ended up doing in high school and then also in college as it related to running and your experience and just give people some background on how successful you were. Yeah, sure. So by the end of my senior year, I ended up running a 401 mile. Um, I was at that that year, I was number one in the nation uh, in the mile. I think we were number one in the nation in a couple relay races as well. State champ, state record, all that kind of stuff. So I was really heavily recruited out of high school, um, which was kind of nuts. And again, not anything myself or my parents were prepared for or really understood at all. And it was the early days of the internet. So there wasn't a lot of information, but ended up going to college and had, you know, for someone number one in the nation coming out of school, had a pretty crappy career. Um, I just kind of stagnated and, uh, and just kind of got stuck around that same zone, even though I was training probably, 
you know, two to three times harder. Um, why, why do you think that is, Steve? Because I've worked with collegiate cross country and track athletes whose PRs are in high school. And it's a really hard thing for them to go through because like you just said, I was training two or three times harder, but I'm not getting the results. And I've, I've worked with them and it's, it's a really challenging time for them. For you, as you reflect back on it, why do you think you were sort of not able to improve? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of it, it comes from you know, high school is more of a relaxed environment where you don't truly understand the expectations or put that upon you. And then you go into college and you have these perceptions, expectations, and everybody is good, right? Everybody is good because like, you've got to be to run at the division one level. So well, in high school, you're used to, we'll say, like controlling races, like even if you have a bad day, you're second or third or fourth or what have you, like you can have a bad day at a college cross country meet and get absolutely demolished. And it, it's hard to like kind of come to terms with that, I think, and, and bounce back. And the answer, I think the other part of it is the answer you have for a lot of this stuff as a distance runner, especially as, oh, I just need to work harder. And what happens is like, if the performance isn't there, you keep returning to that same question. Oh, I need to work harder. Oh, I need to, I need to work harder. And what happens is you just eventually dig yourself in this like psychological and physical hole um, where you're not, you're just kind of a mess in terms of performing. I also think about swimming and how swimming they do tapering. And if you're not unfamiliar with tapering and I was unfamiliar with it because I was the world's worst swimmer. I used to go to camp and I was like a decent athlete at the camp I went to and they'd put me in these medleys and I literally would swim sideways like diagonal <laughs> and wouldn't open my eyes. It was a disaster. At any rate, when I started to work with collegiate swimmers, I learned about tapering, which basically they rest their body um, for their big event. And even throughout the year, they're not trying to completely max out until it's time to really max out. And they're trying to rest their body. Um, did you ever do anything like that as far as rest goes? Or in college, was it still just, hey, you're not getting what you want? Work harder, work harder, work harder. Was there ever any thought to, hey, maybe I need a, a break or a rest or, or take it a different direction? Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to, right? Um, but I think, <laughs> I mean, common sense and any good coach will tell you to. And in fact, my coaches would tell me to as well. But I, I think, especially in my situation, like I was, I was convinced that like hard work was the answer and the way to get better was to just bulldoze through things. And I think part of that comes, you know, you would know this a lot from the uh, mental performance side is part of what I thought made me good at that time was the ability to just kind of hurt and push through things, which in some sense is great. Like I have this confidence of like, well, I can just go to the well and out hurt anybody. Um, but in a different sense, that's a really bad kind of attitude to have because you don't want to go to the well all the time. You don't want to like push until you can't because eventually your mind and your body will, will give way, you know? So, yeah. I, I call them pain sports. So cross country, swimming, wrestling, American football, you hear these mindsets of what you, you said bulldoze your way through. 
part of playing those sports does involve pain tolerance. Like you, you have to have pain. And um, so I think as a result, you have to learn how to tolerate pain to a certain level. And it becomes really hard for a lot of those athletes to be aware of when they actually need to stop and when they need to slow down. Um, and, and the other thing that I noticed with those sports that's different than let's say baseball or soccer or basketball is I'll ask the athletes all the time, do you love your sport? And those sports, I get often a hesitation. There's just like a subtle pause. And I, I, I'm so curious about it with football because there's money to be made. And so when I used to ask division one football players, do you love football? There was often a pause. And then they would explain, well, I don't necessarily love the trainings, but I love game day. Um, and the wrestlers, I've worked with collegiate wrestlers, like, well, I love some of this stuff. But whereas when I ask basketball or soccer or softball or baseball, it usually is like, oh yeah, I love it. Like <laughs> not always, but often. So I'm curious for you, you mentioned sort of, you got into this, you're like, yeah, I'm good at it. I'm competent. I'm more than competent. Now I'm getting attention for this. I'm being, I'm great at this. I mean, I'm number one in the nation. Like it's a pretty big deal. Did you love running? Like what was your relationship with running? Yeah. You know, I'm going to, I would say I would have this pause because I love certain aspects of it. And even today, I love certain aspects of, of running. But I think, I think what you're getting at there, which is such an important point, is that it's all these different things intertwined, especially as you have success. And when you're young, it's hard to like divvy out and divide those, those things out. And you just think, you know, if you asked me that question in high school, I'd be like, oh yeah, I, lo I love running. I love, you know, I love running. Of course I would. But as you kind of grow older and you grow this wisdom, it's like, well, no, like there are aspects. I love it. I mean, there's, I love going for a run now. I love even pushing myself sometimes now, but there's all this other stuff around here that I'm like, no, that, that kind of was miserable to, to deal with to, to, to a degree. Yeah. There was a NFL player, I think it was Martellus Bennett who played in the NFL for a number of years. And he went on a Twitter rant recently about all the things he hates about football. And I texted one of my clients who plays in the NFL and is very successful in the NFL. I was like, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. And he was like, spot on. I was like, man, cause I love watching football. I mean, I grew up in Washington, DC. We have a football team here. I grew up going to games, but working with NFL players, you hear this pause and he does love some parts of it. But that pause is just something that fascinates me um, and something I talk about. In your book, you mentioned Bon Jovi. And Bon Jovi has this quote, passion plus persistence equals possibility. It was in um, uh, passion, The Passion Paradox. And when I first read it, I was like, whoa, that's a cool quote. Passion plus persistence equals possibility. And we're going to get to equations because I think uh, peak performance, when I... The, one of the main takeaways was an equation, stress plus rest equals growth. So maybe we're just wired to like equations and maybe you all are onto something there and I'm thinking about equations. But when I read that quote, I thought about my commencement speaker who is very similar to Bon Jovi. It was, it was Billy Joel. 
And I went to Syracuse University and it snows every day at Syracuse University until springtime. And so the commencement was in May and I was wearing Birkenstocks and mesh shorts under my thing. My parents were like, come on, you couldn't put on like a shirt in time. Like, no, I'm in college. Like, this is what we wear. Um, but I'm listening to Billy Joel and he is the only thing he says. And they sang, which was awesome. He sang. I was That's pumped awesome. to listen to him sing. But his main message to us was love what you do and do what you love. That was it. Love what you do and do what you love. And I don't think Billy Joel, you may not have graduated high school, let alone college, but love what you do and do what you love. And so when you started the book with Bon Jovi's quote of passion plus persistence equals possibility, I thought about sort of Billy Joel in my commencement speech. So I'd love to have you unpack for us your thoughts on passion and why you brought that quote into the mix in the book. And then this is stacking questions, but I'm curious who your commencement speaker was and if you had any takeaways from your commencement speaker. But let's start with Bon Jovi and I'll remember to come back to who your okay. commencement speaker is if, if we forget. Great, great. Yeah, no, I mean, we picked that, that quote because it is, such a, it is such an interesting and almost awesome quote in that sense because you, your intuitive take is to be like, oh yeah, this makes sense. This is great, like, of course. And I think that, is like how many of us, most of us see this idea of passion of the sense, oh yeah, like, of course, I need to be passionate about what I'm doing and need to find my passion and pursue that to the nth degree. And it, it's interesting when you look at passion, we tend to have all this positive stuff around it, but it's like anything, it has, a, it has another side of it. And if you just listen to, you know, me explain my running career, what you probably see is passion that like drove me to perform at a really high level. But then you get to this, this spot, this pause that we talked about here where it's like, okay, well, is blinding passion the best thing, right? Or do you want to have the awareness to be like, you know what? Maybe I'm not doing this sport because I love it. Why am I doing this sport? Where is this motivation taking me? And I think we've got to become familiar with this kind of a dualistic version of passion where it can be a great thing, but it also can lead you down some bad rabbit holes. You know, in the book, we outline a bunch of people who were incredibly passionate, but their passion led them to you know, break rules, to do things that weren't quite ethical, to lead them to places where they shouldn't have been. But they're incredibly passionate people because passion is just, it's just a driver, right? Where you're going can be either good or bad. And then who was your commencement speaker? It, you know, it's funny, you asked that question and I can't even tell you because yeah. I skipped I skip my graduation. <laughs> so... I actually skipped my graduation to just, I just went, it sounds bad, but I just went on a run and was like, I'm just not going to my graduation. My parents weren't too pleased with that, but I have, I have actually not, I, I have a master's and, you know, undergrad degree and skipped both graduations. So my parents weren't too pleased with that, but it is what it is. It's interesting. I skipped my master's uh, command. I didn't, didn't feel any need to be yeah. there. But when Billy Joel's playing in the Carrier Dome, you know, you show up, and so there maybe there is something to uh, having Bon Jovi or Billy Joel as your commencement speaker. Get people to actually show up and listen. 
Yeah, apparently mine, whoever I, I'm going to have to look it up now, but whoever it was, it wasn't good enough to get me to show up. So, yeah. So let's go back to passion for a second. And you have a quote in the book that says passion and addiction are close cousins. And man, I like that one hit me across the eyes and, and look, I think Brad was open about his obsessive compulsive disorder. And you even referenced some of your tendencies um, on that front. And we see athletes who have somewhat addictive personalities at the highest of high levels. Um, so what did you all find and, and where did you land as it relates to how do you create routines and habits and discipline without overdosing into addiction? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating because if you look at it, the underlying neurochemistry is incredibly similar. You know, it's it, largely dopamine driven um, to a high degree that whether you're talking about addiction or being incredibly passionate for something because, you know, dopamine kind of is the desire uh, hormone, which drives you towards something, towards completing something. Uh, not necessarily the reward after it, which is what you see in addiction, what you see in highly driven, passionate people. So there's a lot of overlap in there, which is is fascinating. And if you think about it, it's like, well, if you're driven towards, you know, drinking, it's a negative thing. But if you're driven towards spending all of your time lifting in the gym, it can be a positive thing even, you know, perception from society, even though, you know, if you told some hardcore lifter who lifts, you know, all the time, habitual has to do it, if you took it away from them, they would have withdrawal like symptoms, right? And I know this because from a running standpoint, if you, you know, if my parents said, hey, we're going on vacation and we're gonna drive 10 hours to someplace and they'd be like, can you skip a run? I'd be like, no way in the world can I skip a run because if you force me to skip a run, I'm going to feel horrible, you know? So it's, it's, it's all kind of intertwined there. And what we found in doing the research for the book is that it's not necessary that early that, oh, we shouldn't be passionate. Oh, we shouldn't use this kind of drive towards uh, doing amazing things or setting ourselves up to, you know, train or perform at an incredibly high level. It's that you need the self-awareness to be able to step back and check in to ask yourself, is this something that I should be doing, right? Is this, is this okay? And I think like, you know, are you going to step back and, and, and check yourself during the NBA finals? No, right? But like stepping back and checking in to make sure that like this direction that you're, you're directing your, um, your passion towards is something that you're okay with and that you're fine with um, making the sacrifices or missing out on X, Y, and Z because you've got this like obsessive drive towards things. And you coach distance runners. And so I'm really curious how this shows up when you're coaching people. And I think about this and I use this analogy and it could be wrong, but I think of a marathon runner and that to be a marathon runner, my brothers run the New York city marathon. You need grit. You do need what Angela Duckworth would say, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And she has the word passion in there. And she also has the word perseverance in there. 
Um, but also this idea, Hey, we're going to train for this. Uh, I work not because she's an ultra marathon runner. I work with her in the corporate world. I'm going to her executive coach, but she runs ultras. And so we talk about her grit and her ability to get to where she wants to go. And so I always say marathon runners have to have this grit, whereas yogis have to have agility. Like yogis are about opening up, creating space, flexibility. And I actually created a formula. There we go. It's resilience equals grit plus agility. So in order to be resilient, we don't need to just be able to put our head down and keep going and deal with pain. We also need to have the ability to pivot and be flexible and be agile because if we're in a wicked environment, and by the way, pandemic, hello, here's a wicked environment. We need to be agile. And if we just grit our way through it, it's going to be, it's going to be tough. So my curiosity is around when you coach distance runners and you know that in order to be a distance runner, they have to have a level of grit. They have to have developed a pain tolerance. How do you also help them create that space to understand why they're doing what they're doing um, away from maybe the competition? And how do you, how do you get them to still push through while still being aware? How do you, how do you combine both of those as you're coaching people? Yeah. You know, we frame it as having the ability to flip the switch when it matters. So you need to be grit, gritty, have perseverance, all that stuff when it matters most. Okay. So in the marathon, for example, we'll use that. You don't really want to be gritty during the first mile because the first mile should be relatively easy, even if you're going pretty fast for yourself, even if you're on pace, it's not that hard. But a lot of people will get amped up, excited, try and be, you know, over ambitious in that first mile. And they're, you know, shooting themselves in the foot over the long haul. When we want to be gritty and perseverance is when in the middle of it or the you know latter half when it becomes really difficult. So in there, that's kind of how I teach it is we need to know when to flip that switch. We need to have that ability, but we need to utilize it when we need it. You know, in the first part of the marathon, we want to be more self-aware because I want to know, I want to sit there and be like, okay, am I on pace? Is this where I'm supposed to be? How am I feeling towards this? And then the latter half, right? I don't want to be paying attention to how I'm feeling because I'm probably going to be feeling pretty shitty. (laughs) You know, I don't want to sit there and be like, oh, this is feeling really difficult right now. Maybe I should slow down. No, in the last couple of miles, it's just like, put your head down, like grind through it, you know, do whatever you can to, to stay on it and, and get navigate that, that discomfort. And I think it's the same there. You know, I, a lot of times I use an, um, the analogy of a climber because I think climbing like mountain climbing, if you're looking at, or big Alpine climbing, whatever you call it, like Everest, Annapurna, or whatever you call it, is a lot of times we think, oh, they have to be really tough. They do, but their toughness comes not necessarily reaching the summit. Their toughness comes in the sense of they're sitting there climbing and they're saying, okay, if I continue on to the summit, am I going to have enough energy to get all the way back down? So it, which is fascinating because you would think like, oh, I just got to grit it out. I can make it to the summit. And if you look at, and you talk to some, sometimes the hardest decisions are when they can see the summit, but they're like, man, if I make it up there, 
I might, I'm not going to be able to make it down and I got to turn away. Even though my, my goal is like within reach. So you have to be tough and deal with this incredible adversity that takes climbing mountains. But at the same time, you have to like know how to be aware and check yourself when you need to, to understand like, Hey, if I'm, if I'm going up, can I make it all the way back down? And I think that applies not only to running, but also to the, the rest of life. Do you still run competitively? <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I still train to a decent degree if my, uh, my body lets me, but I, my competitiveness is trying to keep up with my, uh, my college athletes uh, a lot of the time. And do you miss it? I miss certain aspects of it, but more so I've taken that competitiveness and applied it to different areas in my life. I think the only thing, the one thing that I like about quote unquote competing in running is like just pushing my body every once in a while. So it doesn't matter the speed or how, how fast I'm going, right? It's every once in a while, if I can just push myself to remember what it's like to like deal with like all the discomfort and kind of navigate through it. I like doing that. I don't necessarily like lining up for, you know, a half marathon or a 5k race or whatever and competing that that doesn't entice me anymore or, you know, uh, motivate me anymore, but just hurting every once in a while does. <laughs> why is that? Why is, why is getting to that place something that, that you enjoy or that you find satisfying? You know, I think a lot of it is because as I've gotten older and not training to, you know, race the fastest I can or what have you, is that I see it as whenever you push yourself, you're dealing with this alarm bell in your head, right? So at that first instance of discomfort, my inner talk and inner dialogue goes to like, oh my gosh, why are you doing this? This hurts a lot. Like, let's quit. Stop right now. Like, you have no reason to doing that for doing this. And I think navigating that has a lot of value in other aspects of my life. So it's almost like a little reminder of this skill that I developed largely through a life of running, um, but apply to other things. And I think getting in that spot every once in a while is, uh, is interesting. You know, I, I tie it back to actually one, one thing my college coach said that stuck with me for whatever reason, you know, uh, 15 years later is we were out on the track and we were doing this really hard workout and just exhausted legs burning, you know, lying on the ground afterwards. And he was like, you know, this feeling of your legs just being totally done and on fire, your parents probably haven't felt that for 60 year, years or something like that, 50 years. And I just remember thinking like, yeah, you're, you're right. Like, you know, my parents really don't do anything that like pushes them physically to any point of fatigue or pain. So I don't know if that stuck around in with me, but I think, you know, having something in your life where every once in a while you're pushing yourself to that point where you want to give up is, is valuable. You mentioned your parents. Are you more like your mom or like your dad, a combination? Um, 
Good question. Um, I would probably say I'm more like my dad. Um, my mom's super outgoing and an extrovert. My dad is incredibly introverted. I'm probably in between on there, but my dad also is just like, has a very high curiosity and likes to, he, he applies that in terms of projects and stuff like that. I apply that in other areas, but I think we're pretty similar in that regard. So dad was an orthodontist where you said mom and dad didn't really push you, your older brother, when you got into running and then coaching runners, was there ever a time where dad pulled you aside and said, Hey son, I got this orthodontist practice. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe your older brother went that route, but did, did they ever sort of question the path you were on or were they always just supportive of whatever path you've been on career-wise? You know, um, I will give them a lot of credit because they have just supported, you know, there was always, I think for all three of us kids, we all had the talk of like, Hey, if you want to go into orthodontics, like you've got a pretty set path because like you can just take over this practice and none of us did. Right. And they were supportive of that. And even, you know, they were supportive of some questionable moves, I think, in my career path. And it just kind of surprises and shocks me on things <laughs> that I, I would do. Um, but I, I think it was a lot of like, we're going to support you and we're here if you need us. But like, if this is what you think you got to do to figure things out, then go figure things out. I had the same thing. And it's interesting when I work with high school athletes, I will always meet with the parents as well. And I would, would say the same thing to them. I'd say, look, I get phone calls from parents because there's usually three elements that I notice amongst all the parents. There's always these three things. Number one, they want to challenge our kid to be as great as they can possibly be. Number two, they support them and they're supporting them to get to wherever they want to go. And number three, they all embarrass their kids. Like it's part of being a parent. <laughs> you can't get away from it. So sorry. So I'd always sit them down and say, look, you're hiring me. Let me be the one that challenges your kid. Let their coach be the one that challenges them. There's going to be people, their teachers, let them be the ones that challenge them. That's why they're there. That's their job. They will do that. I will do that. I, I, you have my word. Um, you just support, like put on your cheerleading hat and let's support away. And then I always say an embarrassment. Sorry. My parents still embarrass me. Their parents, when they were alive, so, uh, sorry, embarrass them. Like embarrassment is just part of being a parent. And that's, you know, you can't control that. And I've always found that a, it lightened the mood when I brought that into the fold and B it made it really clear for them. Hey, I can either challenge or I can support. Um, and that's not to say you can't challenge your kids in certain ways. Obviously you can, but like when it comes to big decisions, I found my parents to be very supportive and they'll ask great questions. Um, but I never found that they were the ones that were challenging me for their sake. And I think that's, that's just like a big, big distinction. That's, that's worth noting. Um, for you, there's some things around passion that I think are interesting. And you mentioned now you still will run and sort of get right to that edge and that discomfort and you all connected passion and suffering. And suffering is a big word, especially in the psychology world where forever uh, people went to see psychologists because of suffering. The world has changed, fortunately, and people now will get help even before they're suffering. But 
talk about the link between passion and suffering. And there's also passion and process. So you all connected passion and process and past passion and suffering. And I'd love to just riff on, on those with you. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because if you look at the origin of the word passion or where it came from, it, you know, originated with suffering and in terms of, you know, Jesus suffering of Christ and then it transformed for the next, you know, that was what it was for the first, I don't know, 800, 900 years of the word's existence. And then it transformed into suffering in general. And it wasn't until, gosh, uh, the 17, 1800s, really, when passion started turning in, the word itself turned into something that was positive. And now, again, it's all positive, Right. And I think that's interesting to see that, you know, history, because it also bears out into what passion is a lot of times in the sense that there is this kind of dark side to it. Like there is this suffering part of it and we don't like to talk about it, but it's, it's, it's in there and it's part of it. And if you talk to anybody who's been, we'll call it, you know, obsessively passionate about something, then they can tell you all sorts of stories about having to suffer, you know, through things or their passion becomes um, almost like a suffering, which is what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, the self-awareness to know when it goes down that route. What, what are you most passionate about right now? So, what I try to do is cultivate a bunch of things I'm interested in and then explore them enough to see if I'm passionate about. And what happens is whatever I'm passionate about ends up turning into some sort of project. So most of the time, if, if you watch, you know, what I'm writing about or what my books are about, that's normally something that has turned into, oh, like I have the passion to explore this idea to the nth degree and still be interested in it and in enough to, to write a book about, about it. And that's what you see. So right now I would say my passion is in exploring projects, but at the same time, what I like about writing books is that you write, you explore one for a couple of years, you write it, and then you can move on to something else to explore. It's not like, you know, it's not like, oh, I wrote a book about passion for the next 40 years of my life. I'm only talking about passion, which is sometimes the expectation we set up, whether you're looking at athletes, right, coming into it, oh, this is your passion, or even, you know, college students. And again, I deal with parents a lot, too, where you'll see, you know, oh, this kid needs to have his major, his career, everything defined when he's 17 years old. And you're sitting there like, man, when I was 17, I remember being kind of clueless and thinking this was what matters. And now I know that didn't matter. So I don't know if like putting that much pressure and expectations on this kid to figure out, hey, you're going to choose this one thing and then be passionate about it for the next 40 years is a good model for, you know, setting them up. It's so interesting. I, I recently talked to a first-time author, um, and I I had just finished my book, and he was saying to me how he's doing all these podcasts and this media, and he's talking about the same things over and over again. 
I said to him, I go, yeah, it's kind of like the musicians, Billy Joel. You know, when you go hear Billy Joel, you want to hear Piano Man. You want to hear Big Shot. You want to hear the hits, you know, Bon Jovi. You don't want to hear Bon Jovi's new stuff. Like, no offense. I want to hear the hits that I know every word to. But what do you think Billy Joel and Bon Jovi want to play? They want to play their new stuff. That's exciting that they're creating. And so I think when you write a book and you all have written more than I have, and I say you all, we're going to get to Brad in a minute. But for me with my book, like I did a talk this morning about my book and I've done 40 of them over the last six months. I'm kind of interested in this new thing that I'm working on. And so I finally understand these artists, musicians, when I go to their concerts and they're playing their new stuff. Cause forever I was just like, Oh, the ego on these guys. Like they, they just are so obsessed with their new stuff and they get bored. Well, I get it because the reason that you created the first book was because there was something exciting and that you were curious about and the journey of it. The reason you wanted to create that new music was it was new, it was exciting, it was curious, it was novel, you were learning, you were growing. And then once it's done, it's like, okay, it's all right there for you. Go ahead and read it. <laughs> go, go ahead and listen to the CD or whatever people listen to now. I say CD still. Um, do you feel that way after you like complete a book? Is this something that you've thought about? Cause this is new for me and I'm starting to think about it. Um, it, it you, you've written three, you wrote one on your own and then two with Brad. Um, is that pretty common for you that, Hey, you still have to talk about the old song, the hit, but you're really excited to talk about what you're working on. Yeah. I mean, it, that's such a good analogy with the musicians. And I hadn't actually thought about that, but I totally get it. I will never complain about uh, someone playing new stuff at a concert now. Um, because yeah, a lot of it is. And it's not that I'm not excited about, you know, the books and the stuff that I've written. Like I, you know, it, it almost is like your little baby and your little child. Of course, I want to talk about it and put it out into the world. But like, what I wrote, you know, a year ago or three years ago or whatever, isn't what's getting me up and driving me right now. Like right now I'm exploring the next topic, you know, I'm like, Oh, what, what should, what should come next? What do I really want to dive into? Like, that's what I'm passionate about. Um, so it is this interesting dichotomy a little bit. It's tough for me. Cause people will be like, Oh, I remember podcast 73. And I go, I have no clue what podcast 73 was. And maybe I take one nugget from an hour conversation, but I, I don't really remember. And even the, the book, they'll be like, Oh, you talked about this. And on this page, I go, I great. I don't sit with it that much. Like I, I wrote it. Um, and then sometimes they'll say something. I'll be like, let me go back and double check that. Cause I don't think I said that. And what I realized is people create narratives and stories as well. And our memories are very fickle. And, um, so anyway, those are thoughts when I was reading passion paradox, the one thing that was interesting is you start by saying, Brad and I wrote this book before peak performance was done. And so I'm curious, a, like everyone in the writing industry seemed to say, you guys should not be doing this. Do you feel like that is something that works for you too? And if it is, then what are you working on? Because I got this book in my, my hands right now, which means that, you know, there's probably another thing that you two are, uh, are working on. And if you can't talk about it, obviously you can't talk about it, but um, a, did that work for you? Do you feel like starting Passion Paradox while you were writing peak performance was a good idea? Or in hindsight, after doing it, are you saying, hey, going forward, 
we probably don't want to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, th I think it worked out really well for that. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. So what, what actually happened was we were sitting there, peak performance was done. The writing was done. We were waiting on our editor and Brad and I live in different places and I'd come in for, you know, a week of, of doing what was supposed to be the edits, right? We were supposed to go over the edits of peak performance and our editor was running a little late. So we were sitting in Brad's uh, apartment with nothing to do. <laughs> and, and instead of, you know, going to, at this time he was in uh, San Francisco or Oakland. And uh, instead of going sightseeing and doing some cool stuff, we were just like, ah, let's come up with something else, you know? And that, that something else become like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Why in the world can we not just be content and just, you know, go, you know, go for a walk or go to a baseball game or whatever have you. And that's what the passion paradox came out of. But I think it's, you know, I think, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It's a little unconventional. You know, our agent, our book agent thinks it's a little crazy, but they're for it. They're just like, if that's what, like, if that's what you guys want to do, then go ahead and go, go forward with it. Here are, here are the potential drawbacks. Just be aware of them. And if you still see the potential drawbacks and you, you still decide to push forward, then that's fine. What you don't want to go into it is like completely blind and be like, we're just going to do this. So I think now, especially after we've gone through it and know, Hey, here's, here's, here's the upsides of finishing you know, your second book before your first one. And here are the downsides of that. I think now it's like, okay, part of what drives myself and Brad is we're both kind of these pushers who continually look for new things. So part of it is accepting that, but part of it is putting a little bit of constraints to make sure that you're not getting in your own way on things that actually matter. So what are you working on? <laughs> um, so good question. So we've actually got two uh, solo books coming out um, that we've worked together on a lot as well, but are doing them separately. Brad's is coming out um, next year, I believe, on, it's called Groundedness. Um, I don't think he's released a lot of uh, details on it, but if you're interested, just pay attention to his uh, Twitter feed or our newsletter. And then I, in the, in the following year, I'm actually just now researching and then writing a book that will hopefully redefine uh, toughness is my goal. Hmm. That's cool. I think about Jay Billis's book. I'm sure you're, are you familiar with on toughness? I'm really curious about that. I'll just give you my two cents. Like for sure. me, when I think of mental toughness, I, I, I separate mental toughness and mindset. And the way I think about it, I don't even like mindset because I think mindset should actually be set mind, but that's a whole nother thing altogether. But to me, mindset is an intentional way of thinking. So before I perform, this is how I want to show up. But mental toughness is the ability to recover from mistakes and excel when, when under pressure. And so I don't know if you're going to, it'll be fun to read and we'll find out about it more, but like separating mental, physical, emotional, maybe some spiritual stuff, but I'm excited to learn more about it. That's cool. Um, there's a word that you said earlier, which was we weren't content to just go to a ball game or, you know, go for a walk. Like we wanted to, to go to work. Um, 
And I'm obsessed with this idea of being and becoming because like in my life, there are times where I just want to be, I just want to be with my kids. I just want to be with my friends. Like they had soccer. We're recording on a Monday. They had soccer. My two kids are four and five on Sunday. Like I just want to watch them. That's it. And then afterwards went to the park. We just stayed there and we were just present and being, but there's this other side of me that wants to constantly grow, develop, curious, learn, get better. Do you find that you have to give yourself space to be, because it sounds like both you and Brad are people that are constantly, all right, what's next? Let's go. Let's grow. Let's get better. What do you do to make sure that you're also (laughs) grounded to use Brad's title? What do you do to also make sure you can be? Yeah. You know, I love, I love that, that dichotomy there of being becoming, I'm going to borrow that one. Uh, I, I stole it from someone. It's not, you know, it's not original. I don't know where I got it from. Somewhere <laughs> I, along think, the way. I think that's all, all, all of us do. Everything. <laughs> I always say everything's already been written about or discovered. We're just kind of, you know, making sense of it, but yeah, it, it is. And I think uh, again, part of it comes back to like having the awareness to know that you're more on that becoming side, that searching for growth, et cetera. That way you can compensate for it, right? Because I think danger comes when you're always trying to be on that becoming side. So a a lot of it is for me, as I set kind of constraints in my life um, so that I have more of that being time, right? So on weekends, I generally try to clear my schedule so that my wife and I have a large chunk of time where we're just spending time together. And sometimes it's intentional, right? Where we're going on dates and stuff. And other times it's like just being around the house and being present with the other person there and going on walks or what, whatever have you. I try to do that. Same thing um, when I'm looking at like a late, we'll, we'll call it evening time, nighttime is I know if I just let myself go, I will work right until it's time to go to sleep. So I don't do that. I don't allow myself to. I set my computer in my office, my laptop, leave it there, right? And like turn everything else off and for the couple hours before bed, like make sure that I'm not cranking out work. And I think having those intentional stopping points is important. And then I also do things like now running, for example, has become part of the being part. It used to be the becoming part, but now it's like, all right, you know, I've been trying to write for the past three hours and my brain is kind of fried and I'm struggling on this thing. I need to step away. Well, I'm just going to go jog outside for 40 minutes and go really slowly and enjoy the nature and the trails that I have near my house. And sometimes it's not even a run. Sometimes it's just going on a walk and making sure that I leave my phone and anything else behind. And it's just like me out there. So you try to, you try to have those aspects in your life so that you don't, go too far in the the other direction. Yeah, I think polarity is big. We want to have being and becoming. Because I don't think you or Brad want to get rid of your curiosity, your desire to create and your desire to become. And we also want to be. And um what's primary, what's secondary, I think there are different 
cultural societies that we see prioritizing being and then becoming and other ones that prioritize becoming and then being. I tend to think Americans glamorize becoming more than being. Um, but I think for each of us, it's just a thought because I'll tell you people that are just being all the time, unless you're a monk, um, most of us, it's not really feasible. And for me, I don't want to just be like, I do want to become, and I want to evolve and grow. So, uh, it's something that I've given a lot of thought to. You mentioned you two are writing individual books. You started as an individual author. Then you did these two books with Brad. Now each of you are writing your own individual book. I told you before we started recording that when I was starting with my book, I had looked to partner with someone because I just felt like I'm not a good enough writer. Honestly, I'm like, man, I want to partner with someone that didn't quite work. And I nipped it in the bud early. Um, but then I hired a coach who helped me with the process. And that was so invaluable to me. Um, but for you, I'd love to hear what the process has been like for your first book, which you wrote individually. Um, and then like, why dive into this, relationship with Brad, especially when you had a successful self-published first book, which is very rare. Um, like why take this leap with Brad? And then I'm also curious on the other end of it. Okay. Why are you two uh, writing individual books? I'd love to just learn about all that. Yeah. So um, I would say the first, the first process of doing it on my own, AO is young and I was kind of clueless and I was I resided on the, the grit level of, I'm just going to figure this out. And there's some, and it worked, you know, I think I got kind of lucky in that sense um, that it worked, but it was, it was an enjoyable process, but it also was kind of a, a grind to a degree. Um, but it was also a subject that I had spent so many years because my first book was on running and training and very specific into it. It was my academic background. It was my athletic career. I knew the subject inside and out. I didn't need to explore too much. I mean, I did, but I could have written it and, and it been pretty dang close off of my experiences and knowledge based on to that point. So it wasn't difficult in that regard. And then Brad and I started working together because, um, well, he interviewed me for a, a piece in Outside and then we started talking about this, this topic of translating these themes that we saw in athletic, athletics and sport to every other aspect of our life. And we were both kind of looking in the same area and exploring the same idea. And it just came to the point where we're like, okay, well, if we're both exploring it, why don't we try and do this together and try and do this, um, you know, the traditional publishing route? So we went that route. And again, a lot of people told us, well, you know, uh, doing this with two authors is kind of a pain, especially since you both write. Like, I don't know. Are you sure you know how this is going to work out? And honestly, we didn't. But we were just sitting, we were just like, you know what? We developed a good friendship at that point. We developed good collaborative abilities and we were just kind of naive. And we said, nope, we're going to do it together. Let's let's make this work. And honestly, compared to the first book where I wrote on my, my own, it was, it was such a better process, but it was a better process because like we had honest conversations on and set up ways to do things, right? Here's how we're going to get things done. We knew our strengths, right? Both of us can write, 
Brad is a little bit better of a writer in terms of, you know, just his uh, ability to think he spends more time doing it. I am a little bit better of a collecting and, and, and sifting through research type person. So we set up this method where essentially uh, we'd come up with kind of the big themes, right? And then I'd go to work researching and Brad would research a little bit on kind of the bigger picture things. And then I just hand over this outline of like, here's all these studies. Here's what each one says. Here's what we should kind of talk about. Then Brad would write one chapter and then I'd go to work writing the next chapter and then we'd flip. <laughs> and we had this nice little system where we were both doing quite a bit of writing. We were both doing quite a bit of researching, but we were leaning heavily into our, our strengths. And it was just a kind of enjoyable process because it allowed us to create, I think, a stronger book because we were both like, it's almost like we were peer reviewing each other's work and we're able to set our egos aside. So if we wanted, you know, there were, there were sections that I wrote that Brad was like, no, nah, let's scrap it. And there were sections he wrote where I was like, no, nah, let's scrap that. I'm going to rewrite this. And luckily our friendship was like strong enough at that point where we didn't take it personally. And I think, you know, through both books, it was hugely enjoyable. And I would recommend it as long as, again, a lot of it is taking your egos out of it, um, understanding how both of you work and making sure that is compatible. If that's not compatible, it can be a horrible experience is, is what I've heard. And then uh, on these individual topics, what kind of happened is we were sitting there thinking, okay, what's next topics? What are we interested in? And Brad had this idea and was really interested in, in this uh, book idea that became grounded. And I was like exploring this, like how do we redefine toughness? Because in the sporting world, a lot of times you see this old school model, like the Bobby Knights of the world, the old school football coach. And I was still seeing it around today. And I was like, you know what? I want to look at this. And we just said, well, great. Like, let's explore these ideas. And even during that, we'd have these conversations on, okay, Brad would be like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this for a chapter. What do you think about this? Like, how do we go through this? So even though we're individually doing things, we're still collaborating back and forth to a degree to help like sift through what, what works. Cause I think, you know, you would know this well also as a author is that a lot of writing is, it's not so much collecting all this information. There's so much information out there. It's slicing and dicing that up to make it a, you know, enjoyable, navigable um, experience that gets across the messages you need to. So having someone else there, whether it's someone coaching or co-author or something like that, or just a friend to read things through and bounce things off, I think is one of the most important things because as a writer, if you're just doing it yourself, it is very easy to get lost in the weeds and everything just kind of jumbles together and you can no longer sort through it. Yeah, I could see the value. For me, my coach, I thought she could see the entire picture, whereas I was just like head down in it. And so I was able to trust that she saw 
how this is all going to come together. And I, I sort of struggled with that. I'm able to create and go and make things happen, but I'm not always organized. And she had the organization for me. And once we started going, she was able to really allow me to plug and play. And once I had that, things opened up. Before that, it was brutal. Because I didn't, I was like, I don't know, where do you even go? How do you even do this? Um, two themes from peak performance that I just want people to be aware of, and then hopefully they'll go read the book. Um, there were two big takeaways that I remember from the book. One was this idea of nurturing nature, which I think is just such a beautiful way of thinking about nurture and nature. And that you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that you were fast. And I think David Epstein talked about in the sports gene that nobody's ever gone from being slow to being fast and that there is a genetic component. I think you mentioned your dad ran in high school as well, but I love the idea of nurturing nature. And that's something I think about a lot as a parent is how do I nurture my kid's nature? Um, so I just love that phrase. And then obviously the formula that stands out is stress plus rest equals growth. And um, for me, as somebody who I think can go pretty hard, I need to make sure I rest. And I've never been sleep wise. It's been clear for me because I've never been the 4 a.m. workout, wake up person. I've always been sleep in guy. And I thank you because I think your book gave some permission to people to make sure that they're sleeping, that they're resting, that they're taking care of themselves. Even like last night, like you were saying, I often will do some writing on Sunday nights. And last night I was just like, nope, I am tired. This is not the time. I need to go rest. For you, that idea of stress plus rest equals growth. How do you embed that into your world? You obviously talked about weekends and being with your wife and making sure that you go for walks if you get tired and runs. Anything else that you do to live that and to make sure that you're you're growing and, and living the way that you want to live? Yeah, knowing when I do my best type of work, right? So I think that is incredibly important. I think, you know, you mentioned earlier on that being versus becoming Americans almost have this kind of like grind type culture. Um, and I've experienced that I'm part of that to a degree. So I get it. But like understanding when you do your work and when when your work just turns into, you know, not that quality that you need and you need to step away. So what that means in my own life is I try to be very deliberate. For instance, in my writing, I write best in the mornings, right? I think it's something I'm fresh. My brain's working pretty good. I can do all sorts of, you know, uh, mindless tasks in the afternoon, what have you. But like writing in the afternoon sucks for me. So I set aside time and I write and then once it starts becoming kind of like, uh, not that good, I step away. And sometimes I come back, right? But having that, that confidence to step away and rest is in, in, incredibly important. And sometimes it's even like a micro kind of break, you know, just go do something else for a while, go clean the dishes. It doesn't matter. Mindlessly something to get my mind off of that. I think that's important on that kind of micro level. And then on the macro level, again, like zooming out, it's, it's knowing what is important and what I am working towards because I found myself in this kind of stress plus rest side is I'll try to do too many things, which then gets in the way of like 
having that space and that freedom to either rest or explore other things. It's so relevant for me right now. Um, my calendar, we're recording in April. My calendar in April was jammed and I was looking up and I'm like, well, how did this happen? And as I look at it, it's because I said yes to like everything. And I'm really actually starting to think about 2022 and how I can create my own schedule because I'm at a point now where I can, and I can really get clear on like, well, right. Well, what did my week, what does my week look like? And for things that don't need a phone call or a zoom or whatever it might be, I just did it with someone who was asking about writing. And I said, send me your questions via email and I'll get back to you. And that's a mindless task that I can do after I put the kids to sleep. And, you know, it's carving out the time during the week. And then for me, like I like to play golf. So finding a half day during the week, not on the weekends that I can go play. Um, and so I find those things, I call them selfish items. Like what are the things that I can do for me to fill my cup? so that I can pour into all the other people in my world, whether they're clients or podcast guests or whoever it might be, family, of course, and friends. Um, awesome. What I'd love to close is on Growth EQ and, and what y'all are doing there and anything else that you want to share with our listeners and uh, obviously where they can find you on social media. I know you're pretty active on Twitter and anywhere else, um, but talk about Growth EQ, what you all are doing there and, and anything else that you want to share with our audience. Sure. So uh, the growth equation, growtheq.com is um, what Brad and I have set up, which we've got like a weekly newsletter. We've got some podcast stuff that we do. And basically, you know, after writing our books, we just decided, hey, what are we trying to do in the performance world? And it's provide a place that is, you know, no hacks, none of this like selling secret stuff, but just good old fashioned stuff that works based on science, you know, and some of it's innovative, but it's, it actually works. It's not like, you know, this hyped up BS stuff that we see a lot. So that's kind of our platform to try to pump that stuff out. And then on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, I am at Steve Magnus, my name. So pretty easy to follow. And I, just try to put good stuff into the world that helps people perform better. And again, no secrets, just stuff that, that works. Steve, I love it. I think you're a true teller and I appreciate you sharing a little bit of your journey and your knowledge and expertise. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson as well. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Steve, great to know you. Great to learn more about you. And looking forward to toughness and giving it a read and um, chatting with you then about all of the beautiful wisdom and gems that you share with the universe. And one day, who knows, maybe we'll meet each other in person and, and share stories and, and learn from each other. But thanks for coming on the podcast and looking forward to see everything that you continue to do in the future. Thanks so much, Brian. This is a fantastic uh, conversation. Appreciate everything you do. So uh, keep it up. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It's that you need the self-awareness to be able to step back and check in, to ask yourself, is this something that I should be doing, right? Is this, is this okay? And I think like 
you know, are you going to step back and, and, and check yourself during the NBA finals? No. Right. But like stepping back and checking in to make sure that like this direction that you're you're directing your um, your passion towards is something that you're OK with and that you're fine with um, making the sacrifices or missing out on X, Y and Z because you've got this like obsessive drive towards things.